Well, I'm thrilled about our Easter services next week, so let me just reiterate for you a few things. Make sure you get here early uh, because parking's going to be a bit of a mess. Um, In the past, we've had 600, we've had 700 people here for our Easter services, so if you could get here early, that would really uh, make our church more friendly because people who show up then will have a spot in the lot. So get here early, park outside the lot. You can park in the neighborhood, you can park across the street. Uh, but get here early and park outside the lot. And then when you come into this room, move toward the center because we're going to need practically every seat. So don't sit on the end. We'll let you get away with it this week, all right? I won't make you stand up and move in. Uh, But next week, move to the middle, and that's your way of showing people, hey, we're glad you're here, and we want you to have a good service. We usually dress a little nicer on Easter, so you could dress up. Those of you who dress up every week, you're probably like, it's about time everybody catches up with me. I dress nice every week. Well, we're all going to dress nice next week. And I would just say this, brace yourself because I've uh, been working with our worship team and hearing their plans and they have like an all out Easter party plan. So it's going to be very high energy and I think you're going to love it. We've got a lot planned for the kids too. So great week to bring friends and um, it's going to be an awesome service. Well, our new series that we've been in is called Root to Fruit. We're learning about spiritual maturity. How does God grow you? How does God build you up to be spiritually mature? We've already covered love, joy, peace, patience, and now we're moving on to kindness and goodness. The whole sermon today is about what it means to be good. What does it mean for us to be good? What does it mean for God to be good? And my question for you this morning is this. Do you think you are good enough to get into heaven? I wonder what you would write down if that was a one-question test. That I, I used to be a teacher, so I know how to give pop quizzes. And if I had put that in the bulletin, are you good enough to get into heaven? What would you say? Usually we think we're good compared to others, compared to others who we think are uh, less virtuous than ourselves. We like to consider ourselves good, but often that comes down to comparison. Uh, I read a story recently in one of Ravi Zacharias' books. His book is called, Can Man Live Without God? And uh, the story goes like this. It's a story of two brothers, well-known, all about the town for being as crooked in their business dealings as they could possibly be. That notwithstanding, they continued to progress from wealth to greater wealth, and they became rich through corruption till suddenly one of the wicked brothers died. The surviving brother found himself in search of a minister who would be willing to put the finishing touches to the funeral. He finally made an offer to a minister that was hard for him to refuse. He said to the pastor, I will pay you a great sum for doing this funeral on one condition. The pastor said, what is it? The brother said, if you will just do me this favor in eulogizing my brother, I want you to call him a saint. And if you will do that, I will give you a great sum of money. The minister was shrewd, and so he agreed to comply. Why not? The money could help put a new roof on the church, he thought. When the funeral service began, the sanctuary was filled with all important business associates who had been swindled throughout the years by these two evil brothers. Unaware of the deal that had been made with the pastor for the eulogy, they were expecting to be vindicated by the public exposure of this man's character. 
At last, the much-awaited moment in the funeral arrived, and the minister spoke. He said this, The man who you see in this coffin was a vile and debauched individual. He was a liar, a thief, a deceiver, a manipulator, a reprobate, and a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes, careers, and lives of countless people in this city, some of whom are here today. This man did every dirty, rotten, unconscionable thing you could ever think of. But compared to his brother here, he's a saint. We often consider ourselves good by comparison. When we say we're good, we say we're good because we know a lot of bad people. And we always compare down to those who we think are morally inferior to us. But how does God's great book really work? Will God let you into heaven because you're better than a handful of people? Will God let you into heaven because you're better than 50% of the people? Is that the way God will grade your life? The answer is no. How can I know if I'm good enough to get into heaven? It'd be nice to peek into God's grade book before it's too late, and that's what we're doing today. And what you will see is that your goodness is insufficient to get you access to heaven. It's God's goodness alone that can bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. Let's pray, then we'll learn about goodness together. Father, we thank you that in your word, you don't leave us guessing. You tell us how to know that we know that we know that we will get into heaven. Thank you, Father, that you make it clear what your standards are so that when we appear before the pearly gates to give an answer for our lives, we will not be surprised. We ask that you would make your word clear. We ask that you would show us what you expect of us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I hope you're turning there with a Bible open. I hope you have a, a bulletin and a pen to take notes. But um, this book of the Bible is written to a church in a city called Ephesus. The letter was written by an apostle named Paul. And the city of Ephesus has quite a story. When the gospel first came to town, the people there didn't want it. In fact, when people started getting saved and becoming Christians, they turned away from the local gods, which was a problem because there was a big market in Ephesus for selling little idols. So all the silversmiths, basically like the silver union, rose up because they were losing money because of this new god who was coming to town. And they started a riot that lasted for two hours. And they dragged Christians into the local theater to to persecute them or kill them or whatever. They shouted for two hours in this city, Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis! So it's this city that's getting a letter now on what it means uh, to be a Christian. And here we are in chapter 2. The question that's being answered is, when God looks at us, what is our true spiritual condition and how can that change? And in Ephesians 2 verse 1 it says this, And you were dead. Just pause there for a moment. And you were dead. Try that as a conversation starter at your Easter party next weekend. Let me tell you about the time I was dead. What? Was it a car crash? Was it a... People will wonder. 
if death is in your past, how you got out of it? It says here, you were dead. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean physically. This means spiritually. And you were dead. The Bible uses the word dead to describe our spiritual condition from when we were born. You can jot this down. We were born spiritually dead to God. Spiritually dead, lifeless, unable of doing anything. Uh, We were dead. This is a bad word. Because the Bible doesn't say that you are bad. And Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. You were dead. What a powerful indictment. And how on earth can we say, I'm a pretty good person, when the Bible says, you're a pretty dead person. You're a pretty dead person. There are three predominant views on the nature of humanity out there today that you're taught at college. The first one is the modern view, which was made popular by John Locke, who is an empiricist. That teaching is tabula rasa. You're a blank slate when you're born, and there's nothing. And then society, through the family and government and the school, gets to write on your heart. And then you become the sum total of all of your experiences in life. And if they were bad, you're bad. If they were good, you're good. We reject that. We don't think you're born a blank slate. We don't think you're just whatever society has created you to be. Now, that's the modern view. The postmodern view teaches that people are born good, essentially good. And if society and and the family and, and the school would stop screwing people up and just let them be themselves, their goodness would emerge. The thought behind the postmodern view of human nature is that as long as you are just who you're supposed to be, your goodness will emerge. And if if everyone would just stop interfering with you being yourself, then you could be the best person possible. We disagree with that. You see, what that is preaching is moral independence. And we don't think moral independence, me being whoever I want to be, uh, is the solution to evil. We think moral independence is the cause of evil. Me wanting to do what I want to do. A world full of people who want to do what they want to do is not a moral world. That is an immoral world. So we reject the postmodern view that if people would just let everyone be who they want, the world would be a much better place. We reject that. We think that's wrong. We believe in the traditional view, which is that we were created in God's image to be good and holy, but we have fallen into sin. Therefore, you are born with a sinful heart. Sin is built into your hardware from the beginning. The hard drive is corrupt and there's nothing you can do to fix it. Because of that, you're tempted, you're lured, you're enticed, and then you choose to sin and then you download sin into the software of your heart. But built in and by choice, by nature and by choice, we believe we are sinful. The Bible says based on that, we're dead. We're dead. I remember reading a biography about Abraham Lincoln and there was an unbelievable story of a Union soldier named Jack who was tried during the Civil War for desertion. And he was found guilty and he was shot. And then they buried him out back behind the White House. But a terrible mistake had been made, so two of his accusers burst into the president's office and said they needed to pardon the soldier quickly. President Lincoln wrote and signed a pardon and they still have that record today. They dug the soldier up, he was alive, and they sent him back into combat. This is a true story but you don't believe it's true, do you? It's true. And I'm almost tempted to not tell you the rest of the story just to make you go home and Google it. 
It's true. But what I didn't tell you is that the Union soldier, Jack, was a toy belonging to his two sons. And this toy soldier was tried for desertion and executed and buried in the rose garden. Then the gardener got upset because the boys were messing with the roses. So he forced them to dig the soldier back up. So they rushed into the president's office and said, he needs to be pardoned so he can go back into the fight. And Lincoln, being a good dad, actually wrote out a pardon for their soldier, Jack. So I didn't lie in church. That was a true story. (laughs) But you didn't buy it, right? Because, come on, really? Shot? died, thrown in the ground, pardoned, brought back to... What? That doesn't happen. That's why you didn't believe it. Listen, the Bible says you're dead and someone needs to dig you up and pardon you and bring you back to life and send you back out there. That's how unbelievable is your need. So when you say, I'm a pretty good person, I hope you'll see the Bible says you're a pretty dead person. There's a huge difference. What does it mean to be dead? Dead means you are separated from God. Death is a separation. Separation of the body from the soul. Separation of God from the person spiritually. Death is always a separation. So when the Bible says you're spiritually dead, it means you're unworthy and unable to enter God's presence. In God's grade book, there's an F. Doesn't matter how good you think you've been. It's hopeless. Why? You might be wondering. Well, it says here in in the Bible, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Jot this down. We're born spiritually dead because of our sinful choices. Two words are used for sin here, trespasses and sins. And in the Greek, those two words give us a portrait of what it means to be sinful. The second word there means to miss. You, you missed. You missed the mark. Like a baseball player who misses the tag. You, you missed. Uh, like an archer who misses the target complete. You missed. You missed what you were supposed to hit. You have fallen short. Um, the second word for sin there is trespasses. What does that mean? <clears throat> it means sin. It's a compound word in the Greek. It means to fall away or to fall into. You have fallen away. You have fallen into. You have fallen off of what God intended. We all know what it is like to fall. You've probably fallen down and you've been embarrassed when it happened. Here's a picture of somebody falling into a lake and his friends are all there uh, watching and I think it's coming up after the technical glitches. Perhaps, maybe not. We are rebooting the system. Okay, that picture will be up in a moment, but it's a really funny picture. So you can laugh now in advance if you'd like. <laughs> Thank you. That was very gracious of you. Just give me the thumbs up if you guys get that. <laughs> All right. So because of our sinful choices, we have fallen aside, fallen away, fallen off the path. And when you have fallen down, you know the humiliation, you know the pain. Okay. And uh, when I say fall, I mean you have fallen completely, like you cannot recover. You can't get back into where you were supposed to be. Uh, We went to, um, what's that called again, Starved Rock a few years ago, and there was a canyon, and we were at the bottom of the canyon, we looked up, and there were people at the top of the canyon looking down. Then a ranger walked up and said, get back on the trail! And he shouted at them, and the people were up there just doing one of these. And he shouted at them to get back up on the trail. And then 
as they got away, he looked back at us and he said, I've picked kids up dead here. Stay on the trail. Guess what we did? We stayed on the trail. We didn't want to fall in. This idea of us having fallen in um, means you have fallen to your death. So when you say, you know what, I'm a good person. I've lived life the way I think it should be lived. No, you're a pretty dead person. You're at the bottom of the canyon and your lungs aren't working anymore and your heart has stopped to beat. You're dead and you can't pick yourself back up. Some people don't understand that that's the way sin works, but we're born dead because of our sinful choices. Next, we're born spiritually dead because of Satan's influence. You can write that down. Um, It says here in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, is is at work. That prince of the power of the air means Satan, who is a fallen angel. There is a spiritual realm, and it is filled with activity. It is filled with personal beings. And there are demons who are fallen angels, and they mean to humiliate God and ruin this world. On a daily basis, though you don't see it, the battle that is raging in the heavens spills over into your life. That means that evil is not this cosmic force out there or this like fog that somehow tries to pollute your energy. It means that there are personal beings who have a grudge with God and they want to ruin your marriage and your kids and your finances and your church because it's personal between them and God. So you will be tempted by a being who has a mind, who knows how to get you. He knows the bait to use to lure you. It's personal. And you know that. If you look back into your past, you feel like fate sometimes conspires against you. And it's because there are intelligent beings who are trying to tempt you, and they are led by Satan. Um, This battle spills over. The devil tempts you to rebel against God, and you fall for it, and so do I. Um, Because of our sinful choices, because of Satan's influence, we are spiritually dead. Next, because of our fallen passions, you can put that down. Because of our fallen passions, uh, it says here that um, in verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And what does that mean? That's describing every part of you uh, that has a longing for the things of sin. Your body desires sin. It's attracted to sin, like a magnet is attracted to metal. Uh, Like a fish is attracted to worms. Like uh, a cat is attracted to a mouse. Like kids are attracted to candy. Your spirit is attracted to sin. There is an... Sin is appetizing. And it's because your flesh is filled with fallen passions. Your thoughts, your feelings, your words, your actions all crave sin. Our fallen passions show us that sin does not just exist out there. Evil is not just out there when those people get carried away. Sin can be traced all the way back to right in here. The line between good and evil runs straight through every heart. And so we have multiplied wickedness in the world by our choices. We have made things worse because we have given into temptation. Our fallen passions, Satan's influence, our sinful choices all make us spiritually dead. And the last one here under point one is because of our sinful nature. It goes on to say uh, that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
All of the sins in your life prove that you are sinful, broken beyond repair, and that invites God's wrath onto you. You might be seeing sin as like, I didn't do the bad ones, or I didn't do as much as I can. That's not how sin works. It's not the amount, it's not the severity, it's the nature of sin that invites God's wrath uh, on your life. Um, And if you go to the doctor and he walks into the room after a biopsy and says, it's terminal, it's cancer, and it's everywhere, you wouldn't ask him to take out a little. You wouldn't ask him to take out anything less than all of it. No cancer can remain. And when God looks into your soul, you can't see what he sees. But he comes in and says, it's terminal. Sin is a cancer of the soul. It's terminal. And I need to get all of it out of you. And you can't say, well, well, just, just take a little out. It all has to come out. All of it. Sometimes people live on a moral improvement plan. They try and manage their sins to look better. But that's like planting weeds in your backyard and mowing them every week. Okay, so you keep them low. They're still weeds. You have to uproot all of them and put sod down if you want a beautiful backyard. Same thing with your heart. You can't just be mowing the sins lower. You can't be on a moral improvement plan. God won't accept that because it's the root of the problem that he wants to take care of. We were born spiritually dead to God because of our sinful choices and Satan's influence and fallen passions. We have a sinful nature. That creates a huge problem, but thankfully it's a problem that God wants to solve. Number two, write this down. So God sent his son to give us life. In verse four, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It says here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. What does that mean? That means God so loved us that he did something while we were still sinners. He didn't wait until you met your quota of righteous deeds. He didn't wait until you attended church a certain number of times to say, now you can come in. He did something before before you were even born. He did something while you were still in your sins. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. That shows, first of all, his love, but it shows also that you're not really lovable. He didn't do this because you deserve it. He did it because you desperately needed it. God sent his son to give us life, and it was a great love, but it's not because we are anything good. I don't know if we have this picture. Can we throw a picture up there? There we go. We're back on track. That's wonderful. These are Disney heroes. They're all strong and rich and tough and smart and married to beautiful women. Uh, and, And here's the next picture. These are Disney villains. They're wicked. They're corrupt. They're no good. Back to the princes, the royalty. Uh... I like this slide. I kind of want to be on this slide, right? I kind of want to be a hero. I want to be a good guy. Uh, And on this next slide, I don't want to be on this slide. I don't want to be a villain. I don't want to be treacherous. I don't want to be wicked. I don't want to be nasty, you know? But here's the thing. The Bible says we are not good. We are bad. We are villains. We're not heroes. Uh, You have to understand where you start with God. He is the hero. You are the villain. You have staged an uprising 
in your heart against the holy God. You have defied him and waged war on him. You are not a good person. You're a villain. God is a hero who has come to save you. If you think that when you walk to the gates of heaven, you're going to talk about all the good you've done for God, you'll be sent away forever. But if you're going to talk about all the good God has done for you, then you'll be welcomed into paradise. If you approach the gates of heaven like a hero who deserves to be clapped for because of that, you're going away. But if you approach the pearly gates as a villain who needs the mercy of a holy king, then you're getting in. God sent his son to give us life because of his great love. He is the good guy. He has great love. He is rich in mercy. And he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive. Now, what did he do? Jot this down. God loved you before you were saved. The word saved is important because we read here what what Jesus did and how his work at the cross is your only hope of being saved. It says what God did through his son. It says in verse 6, he raised us up with him. That's a reference to Easter. So the story of Jesus is he came down from heaven. He was a heaven-born king. He had lived forever. He was not born just human. He was from heaven. And yet he was made fully human, and so he took on flesh. He lived the perfect life. He never sinned once. Somebody came up to Jesus once and said, good teacher, what? and Jesus stopped him right there and said, whoa, why do you call me good? Only one is good. He was pointing out a crucial fact, that when God adds up the number of good people that have ever lived in the world with his calculator, he comes up with this answer, this many. And it ain't you. And it ain't me. And it's nobody in this room or in this world. But his son was good. Jesus alone qualifies as good because he never sinned. He was the spotless lamb of God. God's math says there's this many good people who's ever lived. I hope you will never, ever tell someone again that you're a pretty good person because it's not true. You're a pretty dead person. But one good person came into this world to save you. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he lived the perfect life, and then they put him on trial, even though they couldn't find anything wrong with him. They killed him because they were jealous, threw him on a cross, and he died an agonizing death, nails through his hands, blood pouring down his body. His back was whipped open. He, he had his head bashed with a staff. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they spit in his face. The earthly humiliation where he was thrown on a cross for all the mock was God's way of pouring out his judgment on his son. You see, at the moment the world rejected God, God did something special. He allowed his son to die as a substitute for all of our sins. The cross is the greatest act of evil that has ever happened. And the cross is the greatest act of good that has ever happened. And so in our wickedness, God overcame our sin. At our worst, he gave his best. That shows us that we are condemnable. This is how we feel about God. We'd rather have a universe with a dead God. And God says, have it your way. 
And then he opens up the floodgates of forgiveness through his love. We killed God's son. We don't deserve to go to heaven. But God's son died to take away the sins of the world. God was pleased to pour out the judgment for sin on his son. So that when Jesus was thrown in the tomb, he had paid in full your debt. Sin demands death. Either you need to pay for your sin or you need to get someone to pay for your sin. Who qualifies to pay for your sin? Only, only an eternally perfect divine being. And there's this many of those and his name is Jesus. Only Jesus qualifies to pay your debt. When you make car payments in the old days, you had little pay stubs and you ripped them off and sent them in and ripped them off and sent them in. And when you got to the final payment, it was such a great day. Jesus made the final payment for your sins at the cross. It's done. It's finished. And then he rose again. And so anybody who believes in him, the Bible says, has been united with Christ, which means God says you have been raised to new life with his son. Your faith in Jesus is what brings you back from the dead. This passage started with you in a coffin. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How can you get up? It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that you can rise again. Then it goes on to say this. Uh, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was raised and he's now on the throne ruling. And when God sees you, if you are saved, it's as if you're already in heaven. That's how done it is in his mind. He sees you as if you're already there. You started this passage in a casket and now you're wearing a crown. And that only happens when your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen by you being a pretty good person because you're a pretty dead person before Jesus comes into your life. You need Jesus to save you. Jot this down. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. All of them. God has stored up all of his treasure in his son. It goes on to say why he did it. In verse 7, it says he did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love that. Immeasurable riches. Immeasurable riches. When you think of immeasurable riches, what comes to mind? Uh, for me, what comes to mind is when I was a kid, we watched a movie called The Goonies. How many of you have seen the movie called The Goonies? So what did they find up in that attic? Do you remember what they found? They found a treasure map. Check it out. They found a treasure map. Oh, there it goes again. Oh, good. Treasure map. And, and they needed to go and find One-Eyed Willie's gold so that they could save their homes, right? So off they went on this huge adventure. And then they eventually did. They found it. They found a pirate ship filled with pirate gold. Immeasurable riches. This is what God offers us in Christ. Immeasurable riches. What do you mean? Does it mean if I come to Jesus, I get a free car? A bag of gold nuggets? No, no, no. You're missing it. You're missing it. The things of this world are passing away. You bring nothing with you out of this life. Immeasurable riches. It means what you get in Christ is a new universe. Heaven forever where the streets are gold. And guess what? The sidewalks aren't even going to be your favorite part of heaven. It's the relationship you enjoy with God permanently. 
That's what makes heaven, heaven. God offers you immeasurable riches. Sometimes we get confused and think that it's the treasures of this world that would make us happy. That's false. Tim Keller said this, we know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things that make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. Jesus wants to become your happiness. He is the treasure of God. In him are hidden all the treasures God has for you. Knowing Jesus is the supreme joy of your life. It's what you were made for. And if you're living this life doing the best you can, chasing after all of the things this world can offer, you're missing it, totally missing it. And you're missing the fact that you have a tremendous problem. Another word for sin in the New Testament implies that you have a great debt that you need to repay God. You're in debt. Your debt before God is bigger than the national debt. That should make you gasp. Have you ever gone to those websites where they track the national debt and they keep seeing? Have you ever seen that? The numbers keep going up real time. All right, there's a clock like that in heaven right now tracking your sins and it just keeps going up and up and up. And you can try and cover it up, but it's like throwing a rug over a mountain. There is a mountain of sin between you and God. And God has been keeping meticulous records of your sins from when you were little. You'll have to answer it. The Bible says it's like you owe God a debt for all the damage you've done to his world, and it's a debt so great you could never pay it off. Some would say, what debt? And they would deny that they've ever done anything wrong, and that's foolish. Some would say, I'm doing my best to add good to this world, meaning you think because you can do some good things that takes away the bad, but that doesn't work. It doesn't matter if a criminal convicted of murder appears before the judge. He can't say, well, I just gave to to charity before I walked in here for my trial. No, no, the good doesn't cancel the bad you've done. It's not the way it works. He has to pay. Other people act like they've already paid it somehow. Well, yeah, of course. In my younger days, I did some bad things, but I did my time. I went to church when I was a kid. I learned this. I was an altar boy, and they think they somehow already paid off their debt, and they're good. And I would just say that if you think there is no debt or you think you're doing a good job paying it down or heaven forbid you think you've already done your time and you're good with God, you don't understand what it means to be bankrupt. You are bankrupt before God. You have nothing of worth to bring to Him. Not only that, but you are in such debt and you have no way to repay Him for all the bad you've done. Astronomical. You need His grace. God has to do something loving to you or you can't get into heaven. The third point is this. Repent and trust Jesus to save you by faith, not by works. We have to repent. It goes on to say this in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is huge. When I ask people if they're going to heaven, so often they say, well, yeah, I'm and I'll say, why? And they'll say, because I'm a pretty good person. Because I live life the way I thought it should be lived. And they don't even mention Jesus. And I'll say to them, do you know the last thing people are going to hear before they're sent away to eternal conscious torment? They'll say, what? I'll say, the last thing they hear is this. Jesus saying, I never knew you. It is a relationship with Christ that gets you into heaven. That's it. If you don't know him, you're not getting in. The Bible is clear in the book of Revelation. The day is coming when you will stand before God and a book will be opened with all of your deeds. 
Your secrets will come out. Your every word will come out. Everything you've texted or tweeted or insta or everything you've snapped or you think it's gone, it ain't gone, everything will be right there. And when your book is read, it'll take three minutes to put you away and then the remaining months it takes to read everything will just be one agonizing, gut-wrenching groan on your part after another because you know that after a fair trial, you will be condemned. Hell is your fault. Hell is your fault. It's ready for you. If you think God's going to read through your book and say, you know what, come on in, you're fooling yourself. The Bible says there's another book, though, that's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus has a book, and if your name is written in that book because you're with him, you get into heaven. You want to know what you say when you walk up to the pearly gates? You say, I'm with him. That's it. I'm with him. That's the way you get in. Many people are trying a plan that won't work, and they have a false confidence that they're going to heaven. Jot this down. What won't work? What won't work? Well, good personism won't work. I hope you'll never, ever say again, I'm a pretty good person. It won't work. Thinking you've been good enough will not work. I hope you hear me loud and clear. If that's your plan to tell God how good you've been for him, you won't go to heaven. Next, churchianity won't work. You going to church and being a good Christian and attending religious education and giving and serving, and that won't work. There are people in Baptist churches who are going to hell. Methodist and Lutheran churches who won't be in heaven. Catholic churches who are failing to be saved. And they think their church can save them, but it can't. Churchianity won't save you. Next, sincerity won't save you. It's very in today to say, well, as long as you believe it with all your heart, then it's true to you. Meaning your sincerity will somehow save you. But if you sincerely believe a lie, you won't be saved. Um, And last, other religions can't save you. This might sound intolerant, but we've gone through several series here where we looked into what the different religions teach. And all other religions have something in common. They teach that you can do something to earn your way into heaven. Some credit-based system where if you do enough of this, then you get to go to paradise. We would say that what makes Christianity unique is it's not what we do for God that gets us into heaven. It's what God has done for us. That's one of a kind. No other faith teaches that. It's our God who died on the cross for us that gets us into heaven. He took loving action to solve our greatest problem. No other religion has that. The truth is God has a gift for you. It's free. If you try to get into heaven any other way, you will be turned away at the door. You need to humble yourself and admit that you desperately need a Savior. And that's the only way you can have any hope of getting to heaven. I saw a video recently of a man in 1999 in Atlanta who got stranded on top of a crane while a warehouse caught fire below him. Go ahead and play that video. The warehouse caught fire and you could see the fire trucks trying to put it out, but they're not going to get it out in time. And you could see the crane up at the top of the tape. Um, and there was a man in his uh, cabin up there working the crane. And, and uh, the fire got so hot, his cabin caught fire. The crane caught fire and it started to melt. So he had to get out and walk to the uh, left side of the crane. Um, and the camera zooming in here where you can see this man. Um, and there he is on top just waiting 
for someone to come and rescue him. And he's not getting down. He needs someone to come and save him. All right, now he's coming in on his second pass. This may be the pass where they attempt to make contact with the stranded crane operator. The helicopter's hovering in slowly and approaching the crane from the south into the wind. The fireman on the end of the line is hanging, hanging precariously 100 feet below. From this angle, it may look like uh, the flames are actually touching that fireman, but he's well above that. Well, I can, I can share, now he has, he's got him, he's got him, he's lifting him off. He's got him airborne, the air crew has lifted the fireman and the victim off the crane at this time, so he's out of danger immediate. They'll fly him over to the landing site where paramedics can take a good look at him. I'm amazed that uh, he was able to survive. I think uh, he's a very lucky man because the, the wind and the flames were blown, or the wind was blowing the flames away from the crane. And I, I just want to say uh, that was a heck of a job. I've never seen a rescue like that in 19 years of flying. We owe a great deal of credit to those guys down there that were able to pull that rescue off. It's awesome, isn't it? What a, wow. Now imagine if that rescuer had gotten onto that crane and, and held up a harness and the man on that crane said, I'm good. What are you doing here? And then, and then the rescuer said, you, you need to come with me. And then the guy said, no, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I think I'll be fine. I've lived life the way I thought it should be lived. And the rescuer would say, you're a dead man if you don't come with me. You're in the fire if you don't come with me. And if that man denied his true peril and in pride insisted that he did not need to be saved, he'd be gone. And that's true of you. You're stranded on that crane. You can do nothing to save yourself. You are helpless. All you can do is fall on your face and beg a loving God to pull you from the fire. And if you cling to any sort of entitlement that you're doing it, you're earning it, you're turning the rescuer away because you're saying you don't need a savior. You're saying you'll be just fine and that will cost you your eternity. Are you willing to humble yourself today and repent and turn away from all of your sins and stop clinging to that crane and let go and say, Jesus, save me. Realize that you have made a mess of your life and you have provoked a holy God and that he'll judge you forever for it. Are you willing to turn away from your sins and ask Jesus to rescue you? I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Let's pray. Father, I trust that there are some in this room right now who don't think they're going to heaven. Or even worse, they think they're going to heaven, but they don't have Jesus as a Savior. And they're deceived. Father, I just pray right now for people who can't tell a time when they were saved by grace through faith in Christ. I pray for people who don't have a story of when Jesus saved them. I pray for people whose closest relatives and friends would say they're not a Christian. Lord, I pray for people here today who are not going to heaven. What a gift you are offering to them. What a free gift of love you are extending to them right now. But they have to let go of their sin. They have to confess that they have broken your law 
defied you to your face, ruined their lives, loved their sin. Father, I pray that some would do that right now. I pray in their own hearts that they would say this, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I have disgraced you. I have rebelled against you. I have ignored you. And I ask for forgiveness. Lord, I pray right now that some would say in their hearts, thank you, Jesus, for living the perfect life, dying for me on the cross, and and rising again. Jesus, give me new life. Father, I pray that right now there would be people who are brought back to new life through their faith in Jesus, not because of anything they have done, but by grace through faith, a gift of God, not by any works. And Lord, when they appear before your judgment throne, may they say, God, you have been so good to me, a sinner. May they say, I'm with him, the Lord Jesus. It's my only hope of getting in. Father, may you convince them that you will never leave them and never forsake them. You will fully wash them and fully pardon them through their faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.